0: Welcome back to the Lion's Den podcast. This is episode number 57. I'm your host, Fanny, and I got a very special guest with me here today. Um, He and I were just talking a little bit off air, and um, I'm not going to lie. It's probably our first in-person conversation. Uh, We don't really know each other too well, but I've heard a ton about this individual. Uh, I've been told that I must interview him. He seems like it's like the legend of Andrew is, is what I've been introduced to. So I'm excited to have this guy on the show today. Um, just to really understand what what his story is and 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 what he's up to now. So, without further ado, everyone, welcome Andrew to the show. Andrew, how are you, man?
1: Good. I'm doing really well. Uh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, anytime. And I appreciate you. And and like I said off air, I appreciate your flexibility with me. Thank you for uh, for for dealing with the the schedule changes. I, I I much appreciate it.
1: Yeah, of course, no worries. It's a it's a hectic time for everyone. I think. <laughs>
0: absolutely now before we get started i just want to know because i know that you're studying uh, at a school that's in the u.s but are you currently in the u.s or are you in canada
1: Uh, i'm in the u.s right now so i I live in an apartment uh, near campus
0: okay cool so how is how has life been for you on that end because i feel like it's a whole different world when you think of like the last year or so and the covid and restrictions and lockdowns like how has it been and i guess where you are right now where where would that be so i'm in i'm in cambridge right now in cambridge massachusetts um so yeah things are things are pretty locked
1: down here although uh they've now started vaccinating people in the state so it's uh slowly opening up we're hoping to get back to normal
0: and and have you been online
1: Uh, I've been so I don't have classes, thankfully, this semester. So I was able to avoid like zoom lectures and stuff. Um, So I've been I've been fully uh, employed doing research.
0: Awesome, man. And I'm I'm excited to have you on because I'll be honest with you. I hear the term doing research, doing research, doing research, but I don't really fully know what that is. So I guess let's let's just zoom out a little bit and talk to, to or share with the people what it is that your current position or title is. So could you share with us what that is?
1: Yeah, of course. So, so right now I'm a PhD student at MIT, uh, and what that essentially entails is that I pick an area of study called machine learning, uh, and the entire goal of like my my PhD program, which is like I have five or six years in this program, is to make some sort of contribution to our knowledge of of how the field works. Um, and the way you do this is just by looking at Uh, kind of what's the best techniques that people have developed so far uh, for doing a specific topic. So in in my case, that's machine learning, and I can explain what that is uh, in a second. Um, But basically, like my whole, throughout these five or six years, I'll basically repeatedly look at different aspects of this, see what could be improved or analyzed or better understood, and then try to, um, like, design experiments uh, or, if necessary, like, like figure out the math to basically explain or improve or, or or whatever that goal was. And then uh, you share whatever you find with the rest of the scientific community by basically writing papers, uh, submitting them to these conferences where like a bunch of researchers meet and discuss uh, what they found over like the last couple of months. Uh, And over this, like this process gets repeated and repeated over the whole five or six years. And at the end of the day, Uh, you're basically asked to compile all of the things you've done over those five or six years into one coherent uh, thesis, which is like this super long document that basically uh, tells everyone, like, here's where the field was when I joined it. Here are all the things that I've discovered or improved. Um, And here's how they kind of all fit together. um, And hopefully other people can use them. And, And then the next PhD students hopefully build on on that.
0: Mm-hmm. I think this um, is the first time in my life I've ever understood the explanation of a PhD uh, that, <laughs> that was a great explanation man I, I, I'm i not even joking like that was a very it was very simply put and I find that when I when I ask that question I talk to people who are in their PhDs like obviously if you're doing your PhD you're doing something academically correct and I feel like when I talk to somebody about it it's like wow I'm not at that level that I can't even understand what it is but you helped me understand that so I appreciate that thank you mm-hmm
1: no worries yeah so so my phd is on um is on something called machine learning uh and essentially what that is is like you have i guess machine learning is much more common of a term now. used to have the time a couple of years ago but now like news about ai is all over the place so so machine learning is also referred to as ai um like they're the they're very very similar fields and
0: that's actually, I was going to ask that question too.
1: Yeah. So, so they're very similar fields. Usually people, um, like, like sub communities ref- like some sub communities refer to it as uh, artificial intelligence. Some people refer to it as machine learning. Most of the time those people are doing very similar, if not the same things. Uh, and what, what those fields are all about are basically, uh, teaching machines like, like, uh, computers to make predictions based on existing data. So if I have a bunch of people um, and I have like a, a bunch of attributes of those people, like how tall they are, uh, their weight, their age, their flexibility. Uh, and then I have also data on how good they are at basketball, let's say, uh, the goal of machine learning in like a really broad sense is to teach the computer a rule that will help it guess in the future given a new person that it hasn't seen before uh, and all of the attributes of that person, can it successfully guess whether that person will be good at basketball? Um, Mm. And so uh, like an oversimplified problem because it's like machine learning is actually used all over the place. Like it's used to figure out uh, what videos to recommend next on like social media platforms. It's used to categorize photos for you automatically. Um, So it's kind of, hidden and embedded in like a bunch of systems uh, that people actually use every day. Uh, And so my research is, is on improving and understanding, improving those systems and understanding when they fail.
0: Very interesting stuff, man. And I want to find out how you got to this level, but I feel like we need to just backtrack a little bit um, because this is where things got a little confusing for me when I was going through, I was doing some research and I went on, uh, I know that you have a website, so I was looking at your stuff and seeing, you know, what it is that you do. And at the bottom there, you have a timeline, and the timeline skips a couple grades, and I, I don't know if that was my browser, my internet just wasn't loading properly, but I need some some sort of background into this because uh, I'm not going to lie to you. You don't sound like someone who would, like you sound and look younger than me, and someone who's in their third-year PhD is around, like, my age, probably a lot older. <laughs> so I just need <laughs> to understand, like, What was your education process like? Can you talk or walk us through what that looked like for you?
1: Yeah, of course. So so I uh, went to, like, I guess, like public school pretty standardly going through the grades until about um, until grade seven. So after grade seven finished, um, my family had to move to uh, Qatar for a year to basically uh, like for my dad's work essentially okay and when we were there the school that i went to um there were basically a completely separate process for going into uh the middle school versus going into a high school uh and while i was in canada like while i was in public schools i was i was in this like program where you could do math at a slightly higher level like i I think one one grade ahead Mm -hmm. Uh, and i was i was pretty passionate like I, i really really liked math uh and the problem was that like at this Uh, like with this middle school versus high school thing, because they were so separated, I wouldn't have been able to take math at a higher level. Uh, And I I like loved math. And so I I applied directly to the high school there and actually got into grade nine. Um, So effectively missing grade eight uh, and, and did a bunch of, did some of the catch up myself. Uh, And then so, so, that way I skipped, I guess, grade eight. And then when I came back to Canada uh, a year later, uh, I should have gone into grade 10. Um, and I did, but because the like because of basically some weird inconsistencies between the U.S. system, which they use in Qatar, and the Canadian system, I found out that I was actually repeating a lot of the material I had, I had already done. And so I showed the school the syllabus of the classes I had taken And they basically uh, suggested I stay in grade 10, but take a bunch of grade 11 classes. Uh, And so I realized by the end of grade 10 that I had, I was taking like five out of six of my classes were grade 11 classes. And then the other one was uh, like strings or like violin or something like that. And so the following year, instead of doing grade 11, I just went uh, like, I was able to convince the school basically that because I had taken entirely grade 11 classes the year before, it wouldn't make sense to take grade 11 again. Um, and they were right. super generous and let me take, uh let me just be formally enrolled as a grade 12 student.
0: Okay. So that's a handful of, of skipping. Like how old were you when you started university? So typically was, you're 18 at university.
1: Yeah. So, so I was 15, but going on 16, like I, I turned 16 in November, Uh my, my first November. <laughs> that's in insane, bro.
0: That's actually crazy, bro. Like, that's a whole, like, three years. So I want to ask you, like, outside of all that, because I feel like, you know, I don't know you personally. I don't know the conversations you have personally, but I feel like, you know, when, when we hear about this, it's like, oh, my gosh, wow, so smart. He got into university so fast, whatever, whatever. But think about, like, we talk about going to university at 18 and how young we are at 18 to have to take on that life and to make decisions for ourselves that are so difficult And now we're looking at somebody who had to do that three years prior. So can you talk about, like, how stressful that was for you and even the world of university for a 15-, 16-year-old? Like, what was that even like for you at first?
1: Yeah, of course. So thankfully, I guess, like, I I have to thank my parents because they were super nice and let me go. (laughs) They didn't have to because I was 15. (laughs) Um, But uh, outside of that, I I had already been – like all of my friends in, in high school were already a couple of years older than me. So, so I kind of felt more comfortable with people who were like university age than I did with people my age, just because like th- those were the only people, those were the people in all of my classes and those were the only people I talked to in high school. Um, mm-hmm. and, so, and so the social aspect was actually uh, was actually totally fine. Like I didn't feel out of place at all. Most people – I went through like most of my first year with people not actually knowing my age because it never came up. Um, and, and so that was fine. In terms of the stress, I would say it probably took me a good semester to like learn how to cook things that were not pasta. <laughs> um, but, but after that, you get used to it pretty quickly. Uh and, and you so, sorry, you
0: did your undergrad in MIT as well, right? So you moved out, you went to a whole different country at 15, 16.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I lived in I've been living in Boston now for for five years or something. Um, yeah, so so they That's crazy. I, I was I was in Boston the whole time, yeah.
0: So you had to pretty much you had to grow up pretty quickly, man. Because like I know you say like, you know, it was great to have the support and everything, but you're in a different country, like that's that's a whole different story than being in the province, but maybe three hours away from home, where you can come home whenever you want. Like Boston is not the furthest away; you could still drive it here, but it's not yeah. a thing that you drive every weekend, right? It's not it's not something you just did all the time. So you were in a different country in a different place, and and I mean, how was Boston? Like I've I have a lot of friends who went to Boston. I've personally been to Boston, uh, and I know like sorry my friends that studied and lived there. But how did you? How was Boston for you? Was that a good place to start a, an early university career in?
1: Yeah, I actually loved it. Like, uh, a lot of the population is students. Uh, the city is super walkable, so I didn't need to know how to drive. Uh, well, I couldn't drive. Uh, like, tons of grocery stores and stuff nearby. Like, it, it's very easy to do, to, like, take care of yourself there, I would say. Right. Um, like, there would, defi- there would definitely be some places where, like, it would be much harder Uh, much harder to live there that early. But but I think Boston was great.
0: So talk to us about why MIT? I know obviously MIT is, everyone knows what MIT is. It's a huge name. It's very recognizable. Um, But what was it about MIT? Did you know that you wanted to go there from the beginning or was that something that came up and when the opportunity came up, you you just ran away with it?
1: Uh, I I definitely knew about it from the beginning, but I, I like, I was pretty skeptical of getting in, so so I applied to mostly I think all Canadian schools except for MIT, and so basically I I kind of said like okay if I get into MIT I'll go but otherwise I'll just stay in Canada I'm much closer to home like the tuition is much cheaper uh, mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes sense but MIT was sort of my like long shot if it happens then I can't really say no uh, and yeah. I, I knew I I knew about it since probably grade seven or eight like I was aware that it exists and like I would see all this cool like MIT scientists come up with blah and like MIT students do some crazy thing and I was like yeah that, that sounds like a really cool place to be Um, but yeah it was it was always sort of like a long shot where if I get it I can't say no but I probably won't get it so it's it's fine <laughs> uh, and then I got it so I couldn't say no
0: <laughs> yeah absolutely I mean it it would definitely be ridiculous to say no to something like that especially like Actually, I don't even want to say especially. I think period. Just the fact to have that acceptance for a high school kid going into university is, is surreal. So it's definitely an opportunity that you have to take. But, uh, like, I had a hard time convincing my parents to let me move out at 18. And I don't even, like, your parents, kudos to them. And they must have, like, the patience of Job to, to, to let their 15-year-old yeah. leave the house. And go to a different country, too. Like, that's, that's very tough. But they, they figured they had to let you do it because – they understood the magnitude I guess of the opportunity that you had
1: yeah yeah and I got to visit oh, like home a lot like about like a flight pass so I tried to fly in once a month or something for a weekend yeah uh, like all these kind of small things to make up for it but definitely huge amount of patience required
0: <laughs> for sure for sure now I want to ask you again about your bachelor degree because I see that uh, um, actually I want to hear from you what what did you do in your bachelor degree because it Obviously you mentioned the first thing was that your your PhD is in machine I think said machine communication or machine understanding one of the words AI or artificial yeah. intelligence machine learning yeah. that was the one um, And obviously MIT is one of the biggest spots for you know that kind of that kind of work so is, is that the reason why you went there because you ultimately knew you were going to end up in this position or was there a different reason why you wanted to go to MIT um, outside of the fact that you knew what, what it was?
1: I knew I probably wanted to go into like the vague kind of field of computer science, uh but i didn't I didn't quite know what exactly I wanted to work on like AI sounded cool obviously because I was a kid and I thought of like over oh, like robots and stuff um, but but I wasn't like uh, I, I wasn't super set on like my entire career path I would say uh going in but I know MIT was like really good for for computer science in general and math, and I really liked both computer science and math. Um, And so, like, thankfully, at the bachelor level, that's all they ask you to, like, you don't have to specify exactly what you want to do within each field. You can just, like, I majored in computer science in general um, and math Mm -hmm. in general.
0: And then you did your master's of engineering right after in computer science. uh, Or was that merged into your program? Because it looked like it was, like, merged in.
1: Yeah. so, So the way that it works is, like, they don't have schedules that are set at all. Basically, what they have are checklists. So they give you a checklist that says, like, this is what you need for a, for a math major. This is what you need for a computer science major. Uh, if you want to add a master's degree to that, you can integrate it in your program by completing, like, these classes and, and writing uh, a term, like, an end of undergrad paper, like an end of bat, like a yeah. bachelor paper. Uh, and you can take those classes in any order you want, with any frequency you want. Uh, Like they have like, obviously they, they, it's like a formally accredited, like four year school, but uh, you can, you can do essentially whatever you want. And then if you hand in, like, if at some point you give, you go to them and you say like, I finished all of these things on the checklist, they'll be like, great, here are the corresponding, here are the corresponding degrees. Uh, And so I guess what I did is I ended up doing a major in math and a major in computer science. And then I integrated a masters of engineering in computer science, uh, but all of that is kind of integrated into the same
0: into gotcha. the same program because it's personalized. Yeah. you love school, man. You're you're a scholar. That's just what it is. It's uh, some people. Yeah, really. Some like people it. are yeah. just <laughs> some people are just really good at it and really into it. And and then you have people like myself who could not could not do that. But uh, I guess that's that's the beauty of the world, right? Everyone's so different in their own way. But I want to ask you, man, like when you were like, it sounds obviously based on our conversation that you were set from day one. You knew that you wanted to do computer science, but I want to ask you, like, did you ever feel um, any cultural or societal pressure when you were deciding what to do, when you were deciding what to pick Uh, your situation sounds a little unique, but I want to hear from you. If you ever experienced that.
1: So, so think like, I guess in my case, probably not because all of the, Societal pressure was probably eaten up by the like the by the past generations like my dad is, also works in computer science and my mom also works in computer science so there was no okay. uh, like like they were totally open with me doing whatever I wanted to as long as as long as I liked it uh, and I like really liked math and they were uh, fine with with me doing that as long as I did the best I could at it.
0: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's a good way to put it. I just, it sounded like it too. And especially when the opportunity comes at such a young age too, like it seems like it was just destined to be kind of situation. I figured that that was the answer, but I do like to ask that because that, you know, it is a core part of this podcast and why I started is uh, because there's so many people who have such, you know, uh, different careers or or out of the ordinary uh, careers. But uh, talk to us, man, like, how's, how have the last five, six years been for you? Because this is, like, the, the pivotal part of your life where you're growing, like, 15 to 2021. 20, like, you're growing, you're maturing, and you're doing this all in a different country. You're going through all these things at such an early age. Like, what are some of the things that you've learned? Like, any expertise that you have for for people, like, who are going through a similar path? Like, any anything that you've come across?
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it, it's been, like um it can be tough at times i think but overall i would say it was a pretty a pretty positive experience uh i think like probably the most important thing i did was uh like find good friends early uh like it's kind of overused in in a sense but like it's crazy how much of your experience in, in like both college and like around college is dictated by who you make friends with within like the first couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I can imagine very small things that I did that I could have done like slightly differently that would have not where I am. Like I, I joined some random club and like, um, like I joined a club for organizing hackathon events. Uh, and like through that club, I've met probably like some of my best friends, today yeah uh, like who i still who i still work with and like know really well um and so yeah i I think you can't really overstress how important it is to like both try to meet a lot of people and then also like select people who you think have the same outlook and like values as you in college
0: yeah for sure um andrew i wanted to ask you a quick question about computer science as a field in general because obviously we're going to have listeners here who are interested in the career, who maybe have considered it since they were younger or whatnot, but they, they're they listening to this and they're like, I don't know if I want to do a PhD. Like, I don't know if that's what I want to do, but can you elaborate on like the the job opportunities or career opportunities that you can get uh, had you just like assume you just finished after your undergrad and master's and just gone into the workplace?
1: Yeah, of course. So I I think that the main difference is, Uh, That a PhD um, opens you up to more senior positions, uh, like immediately out of immediately out of your degree. And then the second thing is that it enables you to get uh, academic jobs. And I I guess academic jobs aren't really for everyone, um, but if you really like to teach, um, and I kind of like to teach, and if you really like to like do research as your part, like as your full time job, like if you're just super passionate about doing research, um, then you definitely should do a PhD. I guess that's not going to sway anyone though. Cause if you like, like doing a PhD to get an academic job is like doing research to be able to do more research. Um, but in terms of like, like the industrial, the industrial market, um, there are definitely a lot of like kind of more senior positions now at companies that they want filled by, um, by people with, with experience doing research. Um, That said though, I think, I think computer science is really great because there are a lot of opportunities, um, almost at like every stage of the pipeline. Like, like you're kind of lucky enough that you're in a field where you don't need a lot of like equipment or a lot of like certifications and stuff like that. And so you can, um, you can like start working during your undergrad by doing internships at a bunch of places that are like, uh, and the internships are like very fairly paid and, uh, give you really good experience um and so you kind of get exposure to what jobs are like all throughout your your career um like both in school and and out of school
0: absolutely that's that's that sounds great and you were bringing something up and it really caught my attention because this is something that i want to i really want to know for myself and i think a lot of people listening want to know as well when you say doing research like A lot of PhD or all PhD, they're doing research, but it's like, to me, it sounds like I can't, I come in in the morning and I just hit up the internet and I do a bunch of research and I go home at the end of the day. Can you talk about what it means to be in the researching phase? Like, what does it mean for, cause I know profs, obviously to become a prof, you need a PhD and profs are always doing research, but what does that mean doing research?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question, actually. Um, and so I guess what it means is you try to find a problem that's not really a problem yet in terms of like, like it's not, it's not a, like you try to find a big problem essentially that, that you wouldn't tackle if, if it was just your day-to-day job. Uh, so I, I can give an example of some research that that I did and then maybe that'll make it clear. So the research that I do has to do with um, making machine learning systems more robust. So what that means is that right now, uh, like if I upload, like like there are all these applications of AI, for example, where they want to use AI to um, detect some kind of diseases by looking at x-rays. I don't know if you've like seen news articles about it, but there are tons of stuff from a bunch of different companies now um, where they're trying to use AI to look at, people's x-rays and then predict based on those x-rays uh whether um whether those people have x or y disease and then to to more efficiently treat them um Mm -hmm. so that's that's really cool Uh, a a research question that i might extract from that um is when does that system fail so that's not really a question that like if you're just kind of a, a computer scientist who's actually working at that company like what you care about is developing the product, developing the interface. When do all of these different algorithms fail? Like you don't really have access to that question if you work at any one of these specific companies. If the person is in some sort of position, like a research question could be like, are there any positions that people are in that completely makes the, um, the AI predictor do really bad things? And so as a researcher, I might design some, some experiment. I might like search through a bunch of images or like design an algorithm to search through a bunch of images and find ones that cause my my uh, my AI to fail. Uh, and so this, this is an example of a research question because it's kind of like, it's open-ended. Like there's no, there's no point at which you can say like, okay, like th- that's done. I never have to think about that again. Um, and at the same time, it's, it's not really of immediate interest to anyone who's working at a, at a specific company. Uh, and so a lot of my research has to deal with look at a bunch of different systems, a bunch of different AI systems that are all meant to do this task, and then see if there are any sort of situations in which those AI systems fail a lot. Um, So maybe like one really interesting research result is if you found, for example, that when people are lying in a certain position, then the x-ray system always fails. And the hope is that eventually all of this research will trickle into um, companies and the companies will actually use it based on the research.
0: Wow. Okay. That's very interesting. Now, why would, why would that not be interesting to someone from that company to know the fact that the machine is failing? Like, yeah, obviously they're creating it and and coming up with the prototype and everything, but shouldn't that be a thing in the process to figure out the, you know, the efficacy the what's the word, how efficacious it is or (laughs) effective it is.
1: Yeah. Yeah, of course. And so the company itself has to do testing. Um, and so, like, there's kind of this fine line where, like, companies actually have to do research. Like, they have, like, research and development divisions that do research for the sake of that company. Um, and so, like, there's kind of this continuum of, like, how focused are you on, like, like, um, application or, like, like execution versus higher-level research. Uh, and so, it, like, one question that we might care about in research is not, like, how does, like – XYZ company's machine work like what's its effectiveness but rather whether can we assess like trends across um, many different companies machines and many different methods and then basically come up with like much more general insights than like this person's machine fails when this happens or this person's machine fails when that happens and that this is a problem that's not really uh, it's not really specific to us like to a company or because someone did something how we uh, construct AIs right now um, and developing like better general mechanisms for constructing things.
0: Wow, man, that's, uh, that's really interesting. AI is uh, like, I think you brought it up a little bit earlier, when you were younger, you think about AI, and you immediately think about robots. And it's crazy how prevalent AI is in society today. It's it's literally everywhere, I feel. What, where do you think AI can take us in the future? And not from a positive standpoint, but can this thing turn on us and and like can we like lose control to the technology? Like, is that a ridiculous question? So it, I think it's
1: kind of like, I guess the best way to put it is that I think that a lot of the worry about AI, like you should be worried about AI, but you shouldn't be worried about it like that. Uh, so the the worry is not so much that it's going to take control and then turn on us and, and try to destroy us, but rather that we're going to destroy ourselves using AI. Um, And so to elaborate, to elaborate on that a bit, um, what I mean is like, like, for example, YouTube or, or Facebook uses uh, AI to recommend new content um, for, for its users. And, like the the content recommend like like basically they they decide based on what you've seen before and what your friends are seeing they try to pick articles that will make you more likely to click them, mm-hmm. uh, and like so that system isn't going to like all of a sudden grow consciousness and like like start attacking you or something uh it can very easily turn these platforms and it almost already has into uh these like super hyper addictive uh, zones that humans actually have a lot of trouble um, getting out of. Like, like a lot of people now, like they just they're just scrolling through Facebook, and you're like, why are you scrolling through Facebook? And you're like, I don't really know. Like, I'm just scrolling. Killing and things, time. Like the the next video seems cool, um, and like you think that it's super innocent, but actually these these algorithms are all um, are all carefully engineered to get you to click um, the next link, and they and they use AI to do that. Uh, and like another kind of similar thing is that when you remove um when you remove humans from algorithms so like like uh what ai allows some companies to do is basically replace uh decisions that used to be made by humans and those decisions can now be made by by ais
0: can you give an example of that
1: yeah sure so uh in like a really almost kind of dystopian example um or I guess it actually does happen. So often you'll submit like a, like an application for a loan and that loan application has like a letter and a bunch of data about you and then a bunch of recommendations. And there's some guy at like a financial office who, who looks at this letter and, and reads your information and then decides, should we give this person a loan? Uh, what AI has allowed companies to do is now instead of doing, instead of some person reading your letters and your recommendations and all this stuff, all of that stuff will get fed into to a machine learning model, an AI model, and the AI model will just mm-hmm. say, like, yes or no.
0: Yeah, that's scary.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, like, it's scary, and it partially happens, like, it happens in some places you wouldn't really think that it happens.
0: Like, I and I only say that's, sorry to cut you off, but I, I only say that's scary because it sounds like, you know, there that human aspect of it, it's beyond just, because when you put a machine there, I feel like it's it's binary, it's yes or no. Like, there's a lot of context and gray area when there's a human on the other side like does the machine is it created to account for such contexts or is it just a binary result
1: yeah so so one of the big areas i guess this also ties into your question about um about what research is one of the big areas of research in ai is figuring out how we can understand why a model made a specific decision because one of the big problems right now is that i give the model like I give the model your recommendation letters and I give it your, all your data and all that stuff. And the model, the AI model comes out and says, give this person a loan or don't give this person a loan. But what if I reject the person's loan and they come back to me and say like, why did you reject my loan? I I can't really say like, because this computer told me to, I don't really know how it works. Um, And so a big area of research is trying to figure out exactly what like, what internal mechanism is this thing using to make its decision? Like, it's not good enough for it to just say, yes or no, give this person a loan, not give this person a loan. But for the most part, that's actually what we have right now.
0: You know what's crazy? I'm going to sidebar for a sec, but your initials are also AI. And, like, I just, like, looked to the side of my screen, and I see this, like, big circle with AI <laughs> on it because we're on a call together. And I tripped out. bro. I was like, someone is in the room, like, taking over my computer right now. But uh, that was... <laughs> that tripped me out for a sec i'm not gonna lie to you. But, uh, that's yeah that's very man that's very interesting stuff man like how do you like where do you even start with so like i guess we kind of sidetracked but we were talking a little bit about the research stuff uh and we sort of got into this um but i want to know as well about the research like how much of the research is theoretical versus how much of it is actually like clinical trials like you're you're actually testing this stuff out um, it doesn't have to be on human beings or whatever the case may be. It, it depends on what you're testing, but how much of it is split between theory and, um, and actual clinical results?
1: Yeah. So, so research in general is a huge field and people span all over the spectrum here. Like, like there are many of my, many of my colleagues who are PhD students who will never touch real data in their life. And like, like all they do is like they, they think about super, super abstract problems and all of their stuff is math. Um, like they basically try to simplify what happens in the real world. They try to distill it into like a mathematical like model or formula that they can understand. And then they do all of their research in understanding and improving those mathematical formulas. Um, and in, in their hope is that someone will then maybe take what they do and translate it back into the real world. But their entire PhD is focused on these entirely theoretical theoretical constructs. Um, meanwhile, there there are other people who are um, who will never touch like a like they'll never do math in their PhD, um, and they'll be focused entirely on understanding um, how how AI models work uh, in the real world. And people span all sorts uh, like all over the spectrum. I would say I'm probably somewhere in the middle. Um, so I do, I do some work where we don't really care about the real data and we're focused on, um, we're focused on like coming up with a mathematical model and then just, uh, figuring out new stuff about that mathematical model. Um, and then other parts of my research are actually about like trying to look at models that, um, trying to look at models on like real data, uh, usually not like super critical data, like, like nothing. Nothing yet where like I'm personally like I'm not personally deciding on anyone's loan applications. Obviously, it's part of the part of the job of being a researcher uh, is that most of the data sets are like kind of standardized, low risk data sets because you're doing experimental stuff. Um, But yeah, exactly. Part of it is looking at those kind of standardized data sets and observing how different AI models um, behave on that data and trying to characterize them better uh, and improve them.
0: Okay. Interesting. Um, I had a quick question for you because I was on your website and I saw uh, one of the projects that you were working on. It could be really old, so I apologize if that's the case, but it it caught my eye. It was morality of law. So what you have written down here is an investigation of law morality and what lawmakers should do to separate or integrate them. The work culminated in a set of proposed rules to differentiate between law and and morality so i i'm like a i I like this kind of stuff and it caught my attention can you share a little bit about what that project was like what did you do in that specific study
1: i'm actually super surprised that that is on my website because that is my i want to say like grade 11 law project i want to say so there was a phase
0: okay okay
1: the whole reason that that my website looks like this is because there's just a phase where i didn't want to keep track of files on my computer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I would just put everything on my website. Like whenever I did something that was like, I want this to still be around in like a couple of years, even though I'm going to change laptops and stuff, I would just stick gotcha. it on my website. And that way I, like when I change computers, <laughs> I wouldn't be super left behind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I remember, so I remember vaguely like uh, it was basically about trying to understand the differences between, Um, different legal systems focused on Canada and the U S but also um, in different parts of the world and Mm -hmm. uh, how they try to ingrain being a good citizen in like the, in like the more vague sense with being a law abiding citizen um, and like how those tend to intersect um, and not intersect. So like uh, one, one like particularly relevant example at that time, like some countries have explicit bans on hate speech, for example, whereas other countries don't and and are like, um, they can, they would consider those hate speech laws like unconstitutional according to their constitution. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it was kind of an investigation of like, what sort of, what sort of like philosophical thinking leads to that legal, like, how do you get to, how do you get to each legal conclusion? Like, like, it's clear that there are a bunch of, presumably reasonable people that each reach a different conclusion on how speech should be regulated. And so how can we distill like what the original philosophical thoughts were that, that led to that? But yeah, I'm, I'm not like, I'm not a, a legal expert by any means when I wrote this, but <laughs> I uh,
0: thought it, I thought it was like a recent thing. And I want to ask, cause I feel like that, that would have been uh, pretty relevant for everything that's happening these days. But uh, you know, I I just I appreciate you rocking that cuz I threw a lot of questions at you that I honestly didn't even prepare for you at all and I and I gave you a bit of a heads up cuz I was literally like I didn't know what, how to prepare um but I I learned so much and I th- especially that last little bit where we talked about artificial intelligence I think it uh, was very intriguing to me and now we're at 45 minutes and I didn't even realize it so um I want to give you back the rest of your day but I want to just say man thank you so much again for hopping on for doing this for answering all the questions uh, and most importantly, for being flexible with my <laughs> crazy scheduling. Thank you.
1: No, of course, no worries. And thanks for having me again.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was Andrew Elias talking AI with AI himself. That was such a fun conversation. Um, I enjoyed, first of all, learning about the journey. Like when I was told, Hey, this this guy's 21 in his third year of his PhD. I was like, wow, like I really need to understand this story and how this happened. But, uh, honestly, very, very intelligent guy. I enjoyed our conversation. Um, you know, the story of him moving out at 15, I thought was great. Uh, that, that's pretty wild considering what my journey was like moving up. But, uh, man, thank you again, Andrew, for coming on the show and sharing your story, educating us on what a PhD is, what research is and all that fun stuff and and sharing some AI intelligence with us. So I appreciate that, man. Uh, and for the rest of you guys, thank you so much for always tuning in, always listening, always providing me feedback And importantly, most importantly, sorry, um, suggesting great guests for me to interview. So I appreciate that. You know where to find me on all your streaming platforms and I'll come at you next episode.